0: Chapter 11 of Les Miserables. Translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Book 1 A Just Man. Chapter 11 A Restriction we should incur a great risk of deceiving ourselves were we to conclude from this that monseigneur welcome was a philosophical bishop or a patriotic cure his meeting which may also be designated as his union with conventionary g left behind it in his mind a sort of astonishment which rendered him still more gentle that is all although monseigneur Biavenu was far from being a politician this is perhaps the place to indicate very briefly what his attitude was in the events of that epoch supposing that Monsignor bienvenu ever dreamed of having an attitude let us then go back a few years some time after the elevation of monsieur mariel to the episcopate the emperor had made him a baron of the empire in company with many other bishops the arrest of the Pope took place, as everyone knows, on the night of the 5th to the 6th of July, 1809. On this occasion, M. Mariel was summoned by Napoleon to the Synod of the Bishops of France and Italy, convened at Paris. This Synod was held at Notre Dame, and assembled for the first time on the 15th of June, 1811, under the presidency of Cardinal Fesch. M. Mariel was one of the 95 bishops who attended it. he was present only at one sitting and at three or four private conferences bishop of a mountain diocese living so very close to nature in rusticity and deprivation it appeared that he imported among these eminent personages ideas which altered the temperature of the assembly he very soon returned to denya he was interrogated as to the speedy return and he replied i embarrassed them the outside air penetrated to them through me I produced on them the effect of an open door." On another occasion he said, "'What would you have? Those gentlemen are princes. I am only a poor peasant bishop.'" The fact is that he displeased them. Among other strange things, it is said that he chanced to remark one evening, when he found himself at the house of one of his most notable colleagues, "'What beautiful clocks! What beautiful carpets! What beautiful liveries!' they must be a great trouble. I would not have all these superfluities crying incessantly in my ears. There are people who are hungry. There are people who are cold. There are poor people. There are poor people. Let us remark, by the way, that the hatred of luxury is not an intelligent hatred. This hatred would involve the hatred of the arts. Nevertheless, in churchmen, luxury is wrong, except in connection with representations and ceremonies it seems to reveal habits which have very little that is charitable about them an opulent priest is a contradiction the priest must keep close to the poor now can one come in contact incessantly night and day with all this distress all these misfortunes and this poverty without having about one's own person a little of that misery like the dust of labor is it possible to imagine a man near a brazier who is not warm can one imagine a workman who is working near a furnace and who has neither a singed hair nor blackened nails nor a drop of sweat nor a speck of ashes on his face the first proof of charity in the priest in the bishop especially is poverty this no doubt is what the bishop of denya thought it must not be supposed however that he shared what we called the ideas of the century on certain delicate points He took very little part in the theological quarrels of the moment, and maintained silence on questions in which church and state were implicated. But if he had been strongly pressed, it seems that he would have been found to be an ultramontane rather than a Gallican. Since we are making a portrait, and since we do not wish to conceal anything, we are forced to add that he was glacial towards Napoleon in his decline. Beginning in 1813, he gave in his adherence to, or applauded, all hostile manifestations. He refused to see him, as he passed through on his return from the island of Elba, and he abstained from ordering public prayers for the emperor in his diocese during the hundred days. Besides his sister, Mademoiselle Baptistine, he had two brothers, one a general, the other a prefect. He wrote to both with tolerable frequency. He was harsh for a time towards the former, because, holding a command in Provence, at the epoch of the disembarkation at Cannes. The general had put himself at the head of twelve hundred men, and had pursued the emperor as though the latter had been a person whom one is desirous of allowing to escape. His correspondence with the other brother, the ex-prefect, a fine, worthy man who lived in retirement at Paris, Rue Cassette, remained more affectionate. Thus, Monseigneur Bienvenu also had his hour of party spirit, his hour of bitterness, his cloud, The shadow of the passions of the moment traversed this grand and gentle spirit occupied with eternal things. Certainly such a man would have done well not to entertain any political opinions. Let there be no mistake as to our meaning, we are not confounding what is called political opinions with the grand aspiration for progress, with a sublime faith, patriotic, democratic, humane, which in our day should be the very foundation of every generous intellect. Without going deeply into questions which are only indirectly connected with the subject of this book, we will simply say this. It would have been well if Monseigneur Biavenu had not been a royalist, and if his glance had never been, for a single instant, turned away from that serene contemplation in which is distinctly discernible, above the fictions and the hatreds of this world, above the stormy vicissitudes of human things, the beaming of those three purer radiances, truth, justice, and charity. While admitting that it was not for a political office that God created Monsignor Welcome, we should have understood and admired his protest in the name of right and liberty, his proud opposition, his just but perilous resistance to the all-powerful Napoleon. But that which pleases us in people who are rising, pleases us less in the case of people who are falling. We only love the fray so long as there is danger and in any case, the combatants of the first hour have alone the right to be the exterminators of the last. He who has not been a stubborn accuser in prosperity should hold his peace in the face of ruin. The denunciator of success is the only legitimate executioner of the fall. As for us, when providence intervenes and strikes, we let it work. 1812 commenced to disarm us. In 1813, the cowardly breach of silence of that tactiturn legislative body, emboldened by catastrophe, possessed only traits which aroused indignation, and it was a crime to applaud in 1814, in the presence of those marshals who betrayed, in the presence of that senate which passed from one dunghill to another, insulting after having deified, in the presence of that idolatry which was losing its footing and spinning on its idol, it was a duty to turn aside the head in eighteen fifteen when the supreme disasters filled the air when france was seized with a shiver at their sinister approach when waterloo could be dimly discerned opening before napoleon the mournful acclamation of the army and the people of the condemned of destiny had nothing laughable in it and after making all allowance for the despot a heart like that of the bishop of denya ought not perhaps to have failed to recognize the august and touching features presented by the embrace of a great nation and a great man on the brink of the abyss." With this exception, he was in all things just, true, equitable, intelligent, humble, and dignified, beneficent, and kindly, which is only another sort of benevolence. He was a priest, a sage, and a man. It must be admitted that even in the political views with which we have just reproached him, and with which we are disposed to judge almost with severity, he was tolerant and easy more so perhaps than we who are speaking here the porter of the town hall had been placed there by the emperor he was an old non-commissioned officer of the old guard a member of the legion of honor at austerlitz as much of a bonapartist as the eagle this poor fellow occasionally let slip inconsiderate remarks which the law then stigmatized as seditious speeches after the imperial profile disappeared from the legion of honor He never dressed himself in his regimentals, as he said, so that he would not be obliged to wear his cross. He had himself devoutly removed the imperial effigy from the cross which Napoleon had given him. This made a hole, and he would not put anything in its place. I will die, he said, rather than wear the three frogs upon my heart. He liked to scoff aloud at Louis the 18th, the gouty old creature in English gaiters, he said, let him take himself off to Prussia with that cue of his. He was happy to combine in the same imprecation the two things which he most detested, Prussia and England. He did it so often that he lost his place. There he was turned out of the house with his wife and children and without bread. The bishop sent for him, reproved him gently, and appointed him beadle in the cathedral. In the course of nine years, Monsignor Biavenu had, by dint of holy deeds and gentle manners, filled the town of Digne with a sort of tender and filial reverence. Even his conduct toward Napoleon had been accepted and tacitly pardoned, as it were, by the people, the good and weakly flock who adored their emperor, but loved their bishop. End of book one, chapter eleven, recording by Melissa.